Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Game week four is done. We're a month into the Premier League and the dust is starting to settle. Chelsea and Liverpool setting the pace with identical records at the moment. Brighton exceeding all expectations and Norwich, Burnley and Newcastle finding themselves at the wrong end of the table. You can catch up with the story of the weekend with Fergal on the lads on last night's Premier League review podcast. But right now we're welcoming in a new week with Marley Anderson back from his Holly Bobs. You right, Marley? Good morning. Yep. Happy to be back. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was late. <laughs> it don't sound it. <laughs> Happy to be back. I ever heard one uh, of those things you say, but don't mean. <laughs> Niall McCorn as well on the podcast. How you doing, Niall? I'm good. I'm slightly more chipper than Marley by the sounds of it, but I'm very well. Good to be. Uh, good to be back for another week. Good, good, good. Right, there are Caribou Cup games later in the week to tackle. But right now, I want to talk about goats on today's podcast. Ronaldo is flying at Manchester United, whilst Messi is struggling in Paris. Could we be about to settle the debate of who is the greatest for once and for all this season? We'll talk about that shortly. That's to come, but first I want to look back at the weekend's action, wrap up those final talking points with a game of heroes and villains. Between us, we're going to pick our head boys from the weekend's games, as well as those who should be staying behind in detention. Heroes and villains, let's start with the positives. Let's start with heroes. I'm going to pitch in first with my hero because... I think we need to pay tribute to Jimmy Greaves, undoubtedly a goal-scoring mm. legend of the game. He passed away this weekend at the age of 81. Now, everybody on this podcast today is far too young to remember his playing days, but he's widely classed as one of the world's greatest strikers. 266 goals in 379 games. You just wonder how many he would have got in the modern game as well. Because in the 60s, when he was in his pomp, the way you stopped a good player was you took him out. That's very much not the case now. So if you consider how many chances he would have had, how many penalties he would have gotten scored, he could have been an absolutely incredible player by modern standards. I've also got to include him in my heroes because he inadvertently gave West Ham their finest ever moment in football. And I'm not talking about the 13 goals he scored in 40 Premier League games for West Ham. But he was 
supposed to be in the 1966 World Cup squad, but broke his leg just before that World Cup. And in the end, it turned out that Jeff Hurst got called up as his replacement. And the rest, obviously, is history. And that World Cup win, the West Ham trio, would never have happened without Jimmy Greaves. I'm sure he wasn't particularly pleased with that event happening in his career. But obviously, Jimmy Greaves not playing in the World Cup left to led to Jeff Hurst playing in the World Cup and, as I say, became going into West Ham folklore. But undoubtedly, the way people were talking about him at the weekend, boys, I think not just a great player, also seemed like a great human being. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you know what? That's the one thing I was going to say about Jimmy Greaves is that, you know, you can talk about all the quality on the pitch and what he did during that period and how good he is and where he ranks in the list of the greatest English, not just strikers, but players of all time. Certainly of that generation, he's right up there, of course. But just how nice a man he was off the pitch. Obviously, um, I never met him, but he was quite famous after his playing career for that TV show called Saints and Greavesy, yep. which he did with, with Ian St. John, who, of course, recently passed away as well, which was sad news. And to be fair, I think he's just as fondly remembered for his goal-scoring ability as he is for Saint and Greavesy, which is just a testament to the sort of character he was off the field. I don't, I've never heard anyone say anything about Jimmy Greaves in terms of him having an ego or him being hard work or difficult to deal with at times. It's just always positive when you hear about him, and it's really sad to hear that he's passed away. But you know, the legacy he leaves is not just one on the pitch. And one of legendary status at the likes of Chelsea and Tottenham. And he also played for West Ham as well, didn't he? Mm. But it's not just that legendary status on the pitch, but he also almost paved the way for football broadcasting in a way. You know, Saint and Greavesy as a TV show was a precursor to the likes of Soccer AM. It was kind of the first TV show that wasn't deadly serious coverage about football. And it really hit a tone with so many football fans in this country in terms of it being, you know, that perfect blend of a bit of fun and also the casual football fan being able to to enjoy what the program was all about. So I think he deserves as much commendation for his broadcasting career post his playing days as he does for the amount of goals he scored. And he was an exceptional goal scorer, but the fact he would be remembered for both facets on and off the pitch and just how nice a man he was, I think is testament to the character he was. And it's sad to see him pass away. It's interesting, isn't it? that uh, Jimmy Greaves, Tottenham goal scoring legend, moves into TV with Saints and Greavesy. Gary Lineker, Tottenham goal-scoring legends, moves into TV with Match of the Day. What does the future hold for? I mean, is it going to be Harry Kane or is it going to be Son Hoi Min that ends up fronting British TV punditry in the future? We'll have to wait out that one and see. I think that's an undoubted hero, though, Jimmy Greaves, RIP, and an incredible statesman for football as well. Marley, who is your hero of the weekend? Uh, well, well, I'm just trying to get over the thought of uh, Harry Kane presenting matches in the day. <laughs> I, can't, uh, I can't quite imagine that anytime soon, but Jesus Christ. Um, moving on, hero, I mean, for me, it's obviously always going to be Warped and um, and Newcastle-based, so let's go for Alan St. Maximan. Mm. Um, <laughs> Friday night, just, you know, tore it up again. Um, he was... Uh, everything good about about football. He, he gets he's just one of them players. Obviously scored the goal, but his his overall performance was was superb. I've never known a player like him where you're so confident he's just gonna skin whoever he's whoever he's playing against. He's he knows when to hold the ball up. He knows when to go past players and inject pace into the team. Mm. And that is that is so rare as a footballer. And he's been doing it for two years in in Newcastle shirt now. And I'm. I'm kind of glad he's gone under the radar a lot. Um, 
because if you watch him for 90 minutes, people just look at him and and I think people who aren't used to watching him every week um, label him as a bit of a, a bit similar to a Dharma Traore as in he'll go past everyone and he'll do nothing with it when he gets there. That is that is not true. I'm telling you as a guy who watches him 90 minutes most weeks, he, he has more um, more final product than he's given credit for big time. It's just the players around him don't always finish the chances. They don't always end up on match of the day where, you know, Sean Longstaff spoons a shot out and it goes, you know, 10, 10 yards wide. That tends to not make the, the highlights, but he does it a lot. He he picks the right passes. Mm. His, his partnership with Wilson is superb. Um, and without Wilson at the weekend uh, on Friday night, I, I was a bit worried um, that we wouldn't have the cutting edge against a, a Leeds team that's conceded quite a few goals. But he was the one who took it on himself and and uh, and pulled us through that game a little bit. So I think he's got, mm. um, I think, two goals and three assists, I think, this season already. So, you know, I think I, I do just look at him and think, why do you play for us? Well, I was going to say, because that is the question <laughs> that I saw everyone asking on Twitter during that game. Because that yeah. Newcastle-Leeds game, I mean, it was an exciting game, but in terms of the quality on the pitch, it was particularly poor from Newcastle United's side. And you watch it going, how is this player, how is this talent featuring for this side? It just doesn't make sense. And that obviously yeah. means you've got to question how long he's going to be there. Yeah, I think, um, to be fair, I think he, he needs to have one full season of where he gets something like 10 goals and 10 assists or something something around those levels and then the interest in him will be too much to um to uh, resist because you know in this market if you get a I think he's 24 by the way so it's not like he's anywhere near you know being too old he's not like a Wilfred Zahar who's coming to coming to 30 and mm. and you know past his 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 prime sort of thing so you're looking at that and saying in today's market could you get 60 million for him probably and would Newcastle uh, sell for that definitely um, it's just a case of showing enough I've said this before on the podcast but showing enough ambition to keep your players there um, and not just be a stepping stone you have to you have to be um, good enough to, to convince players that if we can attract more like him um, you can you can go up the table rather than you know, you're you're our best player and you always will be. So you're always gonna have a, a target on your back for, for bigger clubs to come in and, and take him. So um in a way I'm obviously hoping he does really well for us, but also I'm hoping that some sort of takeover goes through because then we can add more players like him. I think we got him for twenty million from Nice. I don't exact I don't really know what happened to Nice's board when when <laughs> they decided that twenty million was good enough for him. They they might have got frustrated with him or whatever, but I mean it it's an absolute bargain. Are you surprised, Niall, that St Maximum's never featured for France? Because he does have quality. Is it the fact he plays for Newcastle that stops him getting a call-out for France? Or is it just that national side has got such a wealth of talent in those attacking positions? Yeah, I think it's the latter rather than the former, because Marley will be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Newcastle, when they were under Alan Pardew, and I think it was 2011-2012, they finished fifth in the Premier League. And I think Johan Kabay, shortly after that, ended up getting called up for France whilst he was a Newcastle player. I might be completely wrong with that, but I seem to remember him yeah, being think, involved right, yeah. with France whilst he was at Newcastle. So I don't think it's the fact that he plays for Newcastle that that you know is the reason why... You know, you, you look at Spain. I know it's a different country, but they've just called up Pablo Fornells. He plays for West Ham. 
So, you know, you're talking about Brutal. the fact he plays for Newcastle as a reason <laughs> not for calling him up. And a Dahmer <laughs> at Wolves as well is the same, the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Newcastle are a big prestigious club in this country with, you know, uh, on a on a good day when things are going well. I mean, you get 55,000 uh, up to that in St. James's Park, you know, for a home game. That's um, that's great support. And they're, they're a big club. They're a one club city. You know, there's, there's no reason why just because he plays for Newcastle, he shouldn't be called up for France. But I think it is the latter. It's the fact that there is so much quality and so much talent that France have got. Let's not forget they are the reigning world champions. If you write down their potential squad in every position across the pitch, they've got two or three deep in terms of players they can call on. And unfortunately for Sam Maximan, as good as he is and as key as he is for Newcastle, he's probably not getting into that team right now. But Marley's right. If he has a 10-goal season, 12-goal season and chips in with assists as well, mm. there's no reason he isn't going to be catching the eye because... You know, people say about him at Newcastle and why did he go there in the first place? Why wouldn't you want to play for Newcastle? You know, because if you put in the performances, <laughs> well, if you put in the performances, they'll love you and treat you like a cult hero. And that's exactly what ASM's done in what's he been there? 18 months. Mm. And he's kind of been, he's already the, the, the darling of Newcastle. He's a, he's a bit of a hero up there. And, you know, the, the way he interacts with the fans on social media and stuff, there's no reason why you shouldn't move to Newcastle and, and carve that sort of, that love for yourself because it, it can be done. And I think in terms of why other clubs haven't looked at him, it might just be, be because there is this, I think reputation with Sam Axman that he doesn't have as much end product. And I think that's because he's not very conservative. He's always willing to take the dangerous option, which is take players on, try and be skillful, try and really go for the juggler. And I think that because that sometimes doesn't always come off that teams think, ah, oh, well, Maybe his decision-making isn't up to scratch. But when it does come off, it's brilliant. Look at the goal he scored against Leeds. You know, you could try that another four times and someone gets a toe in or the shot's blocked or it deflects wide. But he, but he, he took it on. He was brave and he scored a great goal. And I think maybe that's, that's part of it. But those are the sorts of players you want in your team, players that the opposition fear mm. and that you know, you're worried about as a, def as a defender running at you. And, and Sam Axelman does that. He's one of the best dribblers I think we've seen in the Premier League for years. Um, it, it, the way he, he takes the ball and can um, keep the ball on a string and especially in the tight spots as well. I remember him having it down in the corner at one point and just really trying to sort of take on his man when he really only had the byline. To, so he's either going to go out of play or take the man on. And he, you know, he decided to take the option of, of taking the man on. He backs himself. He's full of confidence. I think he's a really good player. I'm excited to see how he does for Newcastle and hopefully Callum Wilson can stay fit as well because Marley's right. When those two are together... Um, they're, they're a dangerous partnership. And I think that Newcastle need those two fit uh, to, to give them as best a chance of, um, of staying clear of the relegation zone this season. There aren't many teams in the Premier League that wouldn't be improved by Alan St Maximum joining their ranks. I think that's safe to say. So that's two heroes done. Now I'll finish this off. Who is your final hero to be lifted aloft from the weekend's action? Much to your dismay, Jim, it has to be David De Gea for me. Ugh. Um, his first penalty save in 40 attempts for club and country yesterday against West Ham. 95th minute. It was a handball, by the way, from Luke Shaw. It's harsh, but that's the rules. His arm was away from his body. He stopped the ball from going into the box. Um, and it was a penalty. Obviously, we can do villains in a second. Um, but Mark Noble was brought on to take the penalty. And Mark Noble last missed the penalty in December 2016. David De Gea last saved the penalty in April 2016, eight months 
before Mark Noble last missed one. So not in the. I mean, if, go, if you look for a league save in the penalty, it was October two thousand and fourteen that David Hare right, last so, made a save. Yeah, because so, I mean, that that April twenty sixteen was FA Cup against Lukaku in yeah. the semi final. Obviously, you can't separate the league. I mean, it makes no difference whether it's in the league or the cup or whatever. But it's just it's it's yeah. an incredible stat, a poor run of form in terms of a goalkeeper. Yeah, and I remember speaking about this after the Europa League final um, where Manchester United played Villarreal and actually 11 of those 40 spot kicks came in the shootout against Villarreal. So it is a slightly misleading statistic when, you know, a good 20-odd percent of it or 25% is is skewed by the amount of penalties conceded in that Villarreal game. But even so, I remember speaking after that shootout that for your goalkeeper not to save one of 11 penalties, and it was a good shootout, by the way, the quality of penalties was, was pretty good. But you really, what you want is your goalkeeper saving at least one in five penalties. Because if it does come to a shootout and your goalkeeper's saving one in 10, that means you've got like 50% less chance of having a penalty save during a shootout, if that makes sense. You want to save at least one penalty during the shootout because it gives you a chance of winning the game. Mm. So, you know, I definitely think his penalty record was there to be shot at, and rightly so, but it was a brilliant save. And it's not just the save why he's um, my hero for the week. It's also because he came up with a massive one-on-one save against Adam Armstrong against Southampton at St. Mary's where Manchester United um, didn't play particularly well and Harry Maguire was caught in possession and Armstrong was through one-on-one and he should have scored Armstrong, but it's a brilliant save from David De Gea. He made a ridiculous double save against Wolves last weekend in the Premier League. Um, it just point-blank, unbelievable save he made against Wolves, which... Again, Manchester United won the game 1-0 and it was a close game and probably might have saved his team a couple of points. And he definitely saved his team a couple of points against West Ham by saving that penalty. So he's had a brilliant season. And since he signed that new 400k a week contract, there's been a lot of question marks over De Gea, whether he's the same keeper, whether he's passed it. Dean Henderson's come in and he's risen to the challenge really well, David De Gea. Maybe that's what he needed, a better number two to come in and really test him and challenge him. Obviously, Henderson's been struck down with coronavirus at the start of the season, so he's not really been involved. But David De Gea now, I don't think he's he's able to be dislodged by Dean Henderson. I really don't. Um, I think he's been brilliant this season, and he's my hero for that excellent penalty save, the first in 40 attempts. So well done, De Gea. Unlucky West Ham. Um, and that, that was why he's my hero. There you go. All you need now is 400 grand a week to be able to save a penalty. <laughs> <laughs> Minimum requirements. I mean, it is interesting now, much an effective number two, kind of a little bit of pressure in the ranks can affect a first team choice. And it, 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 I don't understand the mentality somewhat. It kind of confuses me a little bit that players aren't pushing themselves to be at the very top of their game without that pressure. That doesn't necessarily make sense to me. I kind of think the, as you say, Marley, the £400,000 a week should be the motivation they need to be the best they can be. Probably, yeah. Um, I I just like that David De Gea and Mark Noble have both now missed their last penalty that they take that they took as well. <laughs> <laughs> right, we're going to talk more about this in a second because unsurprisingly, my villain pick is based on that Manchester United-West Ham controversial last-minute penalty. And we'll talk about it next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. 
Welcome back to Football Social Daily, doing our heroes and villains from the weekend. It's villains now. We touched on this a moment ago with Nar selecting his hero as David De Gea for his penalty save, or to flip it the other way around, Mark Noble's <laughs> penalty miss. And it's not Mark Noble that I'm making my villain. I'm making David Moyes my villain because Ooh. I think it was a bit of a dodgy call. Last kick of Manchester United, West Ham. Last kick of the game. In added time, three minutes in added time, I think it was. Now, on paper, I think the decision that David Moyes made to bring Mark Noble on to take the penalty, it kind of makes sense. As we touched on a moment ago, David Hare not saved a penalty in the Premier League since 2014. Mark Noble rarely misses a penalty. One of the best penalty takers in the league at the moment. 85% conversion rate across his career. But as we saw during the Euros, that gamble of bringing a player on to take a spot kick can backfire. It adds a huge amount of pressure onto the individual. And I've got to say, Mark Noble didn't look like he was feeling the pressure as he took up to take that penalty kick. He looked cool as anything. It's great if it works, but if it doesn't work, then as the manager, I think you've got to answer questions. And I think in that scenario, you've got to answer questions as to why he made that decision. Because not only did it not work out in that scenario, and it was a poor penalty, I think, David De Gea made a good save, but it was at good height for David De Gea. It wasn't particularly hit into the corner either. But if that is your plan when you get a penalty, is bring Mark Noble on with 30 seconds to go, what happens if you've got no subs left? What happens if you've got 15 minutes to go? You need to have a plan B. And I thought, for me, it stunk of there not being a plan B for David Moyes. There not being another person on that pitch that he was capable of trusting with taking that penalty. You've got... Declan Rice on that pitch. You've got Sed Benrahma on that pitch. And they have missed penalties in recent history, both of them. But surely, making that decision to bring on Mark Noble not just didn't work out in this scenario, but also says something about the faith and the confidence you have in the other people in your team. And I thought that, for me, raises some questions. And that is why David Moyes, reluctantly, is my villain from the weekend. Did you kind of see my point there, Niall, in that... It doesn't say much yeah. about the faith you have in the rest of your team when you're bringing on your veteran with 30 seconds to go. I agree. Um, and I see both sides of the argument. I mean, I think Micah Richards was talking about this on TV after the game. Mark Noble scored 10 of his last 10 penalties. And then you look at the recent penalty history, even you go as recently as Jesse Lingard when he was on loan mm. at West Ham from Manchester United. He scored one and missed one of the two penalties that he had. When he was at West Ham, the fact that Lingard, who isn't even in the top five penalty takers at Manchester United, can go on loan to West Ham and be number one penalty taker is a problem. I don't think West Ham have enough penalty takers in their team. I wouldn't fancy Declan Rice to take one. Mikhail Antonio isn't available because he's suspended. And I think it comes down to the fact that West Ham don't have a backup striker. They played Jared Bowen through the middle yesterday and... You know, all of these small decisions might seem trivial in comparison to, oh, should he bring Noble off the bench or not? But I think they all do play a factor because if Mark Noble at 34 years of age, who's been watching the game for 94 minutes, is your best penalty taker, then there is a problem there because he's retiring at the end of the season. Mm. And you you just need as a team to know who your best set piece taker is. Um I mean, I quite. I mean, Cresswell's got quite a good delivery, isn't he? Why was, doesn't he I was take just penalties? thinking about Cresswell actually, and thinking who you'd back in that squad. You know, he can. He's yeah. crossing's fantastic. You know, as in like he can Absolutely. hit a target basically. So I don't think I've ever is seen. He, him is take he not penalty. worth it? I don't think I've ever seen him take one. So 
I mean, there's all got to be a reason. You take a penalty, but I'd have backed you over Mark Noble. Well, the weekend you're, you're a fool, then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would look. I at, know what you mean, Jim. I'd, I'd look at Yarmolenko, who takes. I think I think Yarmolenko's the penalty taker for Ukraine. Mm. And so, why wouldn't you back him to score in that scenario, particularly as he's on the pitch? Because he's erratic. Mm. You don't know what you're going to get from Yarmolenko. He's, he's crazy as a box of frogs. So, I don't know. I, I'm just quickly on this. I just thought. If you're coming on in the 94th minute, I'd smash it down the middle, me, because it takes a very, very brave goalkeeper to stand mm-hmm. still in the 95th minute of a game. And I think yeah. if you run, run up and hammer it, Troy Deeney style, no one's uh, no one's going to stand there and save it. So you've got a 50-50 shot of it being saved if you go to, to either direction. I agree. And actually, there's an article about this on the sports social website, sport-social.co.uk, where David Moyes has basically defended his decision to send Mark Noble on. And he says that he doesn't regret it. He says... That's part of management. You have to make big decisions and sometimes they go for you, sometimes they don't. Obviously, this one didn't. But he said, why don't I bring Mark Noble on because of his record on penalties? And if he scores it, David Moyes is a genius. And Marley's right. If he rolls it down the middle, David De Gea is not saving that. There's Mm. no way that David De Gea is standing up tall and straight in the 94th minute. Um, I think that Mark Noble made the wrong decision um, with his penalty. By trying to stick it in the corner. I think Marley's right. I think you've got to go down the middle. Um, so actually, David Moyes can be given all the credit in the world for um, for that, uh, if, if it goes well. But if it doesn't go well, he's the man under fire. Um, more so than Mark Noble, because I think it's not a great penalty. Mm-hmm. Well saved by De Gea. But, um, you know, even though you can go into the nuts and bolts of the game and say United should have had a penalty anyway, a couple of fouls possibly on Cristiano Ronaldo. So, I mean, you can forensically analyse these sorts of decisions. But at the end of the day, you know, he's missed the penalty. Is it any bigger than that? Mm. You know, really? Probably not. And then arguably it was the right result at the end because I think Manchester United probably did deserve that at the end of 90 minutes. And the best thing to come out of it was the heat map, undoubtedly, which Marley shared earlier on our Twitter account at The Sports Social. You can see it there, the Mark Noble heat map, which is just one spot on the Premier League. <laughs> it kind of resembles my heat map after 60 minutes of five-a-side, to be fair. And he, and he was only on 30 seconds, so it wasn't too bad. You're too self-deprecating, Jim. I've seen you get about those five-a-side pitches. You're everywhere. <laughs> not sure about that but anyway Marley who is your villain Jim, of the weekend Jim's nickname is coronavirus because he just gets everywhere <laughs> and irritates everyone and annoys the crap out of people for 60 minutes um, go on Marley who's your villain from the weekend um, so my villain was going to be Martin Atkinson but then I watched the highlights of, of Brighton versus Leicester and I decided to widen it to, to all VAR basically <laughs> Um, and you know we said remember after one game of the season saying has VAR got better and I, I said has got better. hang on a minute let's just wait because it was shocking at the weekend because I mean Man United had two stonewall penalties not given against Ronaldo I think when, when Sufal chopped him um, and then when uh, it was Zuma I think it was who, who dived in on him as well um, so there's two um, that should have put the result beyond doubt that should have been you know three 3-1 to Man United with Noble missing the penalty it might have been 3-2 and it wouldn't have affected the result it would have been as, wouldn't have been as much of a pressure situation but then I watched the goals that um the two goals that that Leicester got uh, disallowed against Brighton with uh, both almost carbon copies of each other with Harvey Barnes annoying the goalkeeper but not really doing anything and getting flagged offside for not touching the ball and 
being in the eye line of, of Robert Sanchez, which is the one it's something that annoys me, um, as as a fan watching goals get disallowed for, for players that weren't interfering in play but were seen to be interfering with goalkeepers' line of vision. I think goalkeepers' lines of vision are going to get blocked from corners, definitely, all times because there's 20 players in the box or 16 players in the box, whatever it is. And I just think they were very harshly done by because they scored two goals um, from corners and, and they should have uh, should have allowed it. So VAR looking at that and saying, oh, well, by the rules, it's it's this. And, you know, he's, he was two foot from the goalkeeper, so how could he see around him? It's not his problem. Goalkeepers, in my opinion, should move if they can't see. Um, and it's become too easy for them to go, you know, point fingers and say, look, he was in my way, I couldn't see everything. And I just think it's uh, it's a it's a failed rule. Is that the problem with VAR as a concept, though, that we expect perfect decisions, yet we've still got humans at the other end of this technology-making decision? Mm. Yeah, Robots trying to, you know, give Stonewall decisions like yes or no when a lot of football is a grey area and it's a um, a point of of interpretation. Like one man might see yeah. something as a foul and some yeah, yeah, subjective, yeah. So mm. you know, some people might see it as a foul and the guy in charge might not. So you've seen it with uh, with the Ronaldo decisions um, against West Ham. I think if there was sixty thousand people in that stadium. At, at the London Stadium, I think fifty nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine thought it was a penalty. That's including West Ham fans, and the only one that didn't was Martin Atkinson. And he's seen it on his replays and said, "Well, I'm happy with my decision." But I think that that again comes down to pride and not wanting to change your own decision and not not wanting to look weak and mm. admit that you got it wrong mm. in the first place, which is the whole problem with VAR, in my opinion. You know, Martin Atkinson's what in his mid fifties, something like that. Similar with Mike Dean. Whereas you've got someone like Michael Oliver and some referees now that are under the age of 40 that are, are slightly younger. Now, this might sound like a, a trivial point and a bit of a discrepancy, but the fact that Mike Dean used to stand on the terraces of Tranmere Rovers and watch his team at Prenton Park probably back in the 80s. And football has changed completely since then. And it is a subjective sport to the point where what Mike Dean thinks is a foul might be different to what Michael Oliver thinks is a foul. And there's a 15-year age gap, for example, between the two referees. And although all the referees get in a room and a group together at the start of a season and they sit down and they say, right, this is what's going to be a foul this season, this is what isn't, I still think that you have that just ingrained in you from watching football. I mean, mm. what we used to watch when we were growing up in the 90s, early 2000s is a totally different um, kettle of fish to what we see now in the Premier League. Some of the tackles you used to see then would 100% be red cards now. I mean, studs up challenges, yeah. both feet off of the ground, tackles from behind. Those are all things that weren't really punishable offences, seriously punishable offences, when I first started watching football. And actually now, as we get a bit, a bit older and the game grows and develops, the game is evolving. So these referees, despite the fact that there is a rule book, a lot of the time, as Marley says, it's all subjective. The only things that aren't subjective are things like, is the ball completely over the line, goal line technology, everything else when it comes to fouls and, and free kicks and stuff like that. That's all just subjective. It's all just in the referee's opinion. And actually, you know, is it is it a clear and obvious error? Well, that is what we've been discussing in a nutshell since VAR first came in. You know, and we're still talking about it now. 
And I'm glad that Marley brought up what he said the other week because he's absolutely spot on because VAR, we praised it maybe at the first week of the season, I think it was, where it was absolutely perfect. Every decision was right. But since then, we've not had a weekend where every decision was right. And I think even though it probably does bump up the accuracy of decision-making correctness in the Premier League, because it's got this stigma attached to it that it needs to get everything right. And what's the point if we've got technology and yet they've still got the decision wrong? I think that people will always criticise it because of the fact that we can never achieve 100% accuracy. All it is is computer technology being operated by a human anyway. So it's just in the opinion of another person. So actually, really, it's just the same debate that we're going to have every time a VAR decision comes up. It just it doesn't really make any difference because we're still going to have debates over whether the decision was right or the decision was wrong. And instead of talking about Martin Atkinson and Mike Dean and Michael Oliver, we're talking about VAR. It's almost like a deflection. We're talking about technology and who's in the truck at Stockley Park rather than the actual decisions themselves. So we may as well have just kept things as they were. Mm, I do kind of agree. At the same time, I do want to celebrate the improvements that there have been in VAR this season. I think there are more yeah. decisions getting right on balance and also it's way most importantly, it the pace yeah. of it. The, the decisions are happening quickly. They're not spending hours looking at stuff. You're kind of getting it within 60 seconds rather than within five minutes or whatever it was previously. Uh, let's wrap up the villains. Niall, who's your final one? My final one is the manager of Norwich, Daniel Farker. Might seem harsh, and he's not a villain for anything he's said or anything he's done, although he did have a little bit of a dig at the Norwich fans, apparently, um, this weekend, which I thought was a little bit unfair, considering he has an average of 18 points per 38 games in a Premier League season. You're not going to stay up in the Premier League with 18 points. His goal difference as a Premier League manager of Norwich Goals for 28, goals conceded 89. That is a goal difference of minus 61. Of the 43 Premier League matches he's been the manager of, 32 of them have been losses. Only 11 of them haven't been. And of that 11, the breakdown is six draws and five wins. Five wins in 43 Premier League matches. That is poor. Mm. And Norwich again, absolutely blown off the park by Watford, a team who was promoted behind them in the championship last season but they look far more equipped to stay up than Norwich do in terms of the performances I'm not talking about the personnel but in terms of the performances that is just a dreadful record for Daniel Farker what I mean, about in terms like of we the say the, ma- the magic um staying up barometer is 40 points isn't it but mm. to average 18 points per 38 games that's awful in terms of the personnel and you say that Norwich Watford look more equipped to stay up on their performances rather than their personnel do Norwich if you look at it squad by squad on paper 1 to 11 do Norwich have the tools they need to stay up so because if they don't surely there's only so much that Daniel Farker can do yeah I know but what's the ambition for Norwich this season just to stay up right Mm. you can't stay up with 18 points from 38 games and I never like calling for a manager to be sacked and that's not what I'm saying here I'm just saying that Daniel Farker really needs to think about maybe changing his approach because what got them up from the championship twice in the last three seasons is not good enough to keep them in the Premier League clearly Mm. it just isn't and I just think that it is going to be a real war of attrition if he's going to try and play in the way that he wants to and be successful he might back his players and be confident that they can get the job done but he said this last time 
this time last season, or this time two seasons ago, sorry, when they were last in the Premier League, they beat Man City. Timo Pukki was banging in the goals and everyone was like, Norwich, they're, they're, they're going to stay up this time. You know, they, they've got a little bit more in the tank than people think. And then they couldn't win for love nor money after that. And they ended up getting relegated stone dead bottom. And it was pretty much easy for everyone else. And Daniel Farker now, I think, is on the longest losing streak of any manager in Premier League history. So there's a rot that set in at Norwich City in the Premier League. Mm. And what can you change? The only thing you can really change is either A, the style of play from the manager, try something different, or B, the manager himself. So he's my villain. Um, I quite like him, actually, because obviously he's been successful with Norwich and for Norwich in the championship. And I think he's done well at developing some of the younger players that Norwich have got. You know, he's turned Emi Buendia in a, into a star enough to convince Aston Villa to pay good money for him. Arsenal were interested in him. Todd Cantwell's a young player who's come through. Um, Jamal Lewis, Ben Godfrey, they've all come through at Norwich under his um, under his leadership. But in terms of what they need right now to stay up in the Premier League, is it really working? If you look at the statistics, they're absolutely damning for him. So that would be, be my villain. And I hope he succeeds. I really do, because I do like him, as I say. But I mean, what what did Norwich expect from here on in with the resources that they've got and the manager that they've got in terms of staying up in the Premier League? Surely that's what the fans want, because it seems like at the moment, every time Norwich are in the Premier League, you may as well have 19 teams and you're only fighting for two relegation spots because you can, you know, put your house on the fact that Norwich are going to be in the bottom three come the end of the season. It'll be interesting to see what happens if they are at the bottom and potentially pointless by the time it gets to Christmas and whether Norwich City keep faith because they've shown incredible faith and loyalty to Farker so far. I think he's in his fifth, fourth or fifth season in Carrow Road now. So it'll be interesting to see whether he's there come December. Right, that is it for Heroes and Villains. We're going to finish off today's podcast with a discussion about goats. We'll do it next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. We're finishing today's podcast with the tale of two goats, Messi and Ronaldo, experiencing very different lives at their new clubs at the moment. And maybe the debate could be settled once and for all as to who is the greatest of all time. Messi subbed at PSG during the game last night, him making his home debut. Ronaldo continuing to bang the goals in for Manchester United, looking like a very astute purchase at Old Trafford. Do you think this could end up being the season that decides the debate, Marley? Whether Ronaldo or Messi is top of the pile? Is it? Just, I mean, it's probably too early to judge at the moment, but do you think we could see it panning out in a way that kind of finishes that debate? Um, yeah, no, because people will debate it for the rest of time. I would say. <laughs> I would say same was same as when you you talk to a child and he says who could win in a fight Iron Man or Batman and you'd be like Iron well, Man well <laughs> really? I don't know <laughs> you're like I don't know what if I, I don't know depends who what they have for breakfast I don't know <laughs> um, so it's I don't know it'll go on forever I mean it's it's down it's down to personal opinion um, the one thing I do think is Messi tarnished his reputation by going to PSG I said it at the time and. I know it was out of his out of his hands, but 
go into a league where there's it's it's a one horse race, uh, and they still managed to come second in a one horse race last season. But uh, it is it is one horse race, and all their eggs go in the Champions League basket every year, and they don't win it every year. Um, it's a huge gamble, and it's something that that detractors will use as as huge ammo. I think you know in the coefficient ratings, um, France is the sixth best league in the world. They got overtook by Portugal recently. Really? Yeah, it's down. It's down to six now. So it's not, it's not even in the top five anymore. Um, so I think because of um, Porto and Benfica doing fairly well recently, um, they they overtook them because PSG uh, France only have PSG. So um, on that, that's always going to be there against Messi. And even if he scores, you know, thirty five goals a season when you play in Amiens and and Nantes and Strasbourg and, and these these sort of teams, it's not the same as as doing it um, in the Premier League. It's not the same as doing it in La Liga or even in Italy. So that's always going to be something that people use as as fuel for their Ronaldo fire. Um, and one thing I kind of probably the biggest thing I don't like about Ronaldo coming back to the Premier League is the fact that play um, fans are now like, yeah, well he's the best because he's he's at Man United again and he came back and he loved us, but. In reality, he was going to go to Man City until they were until they, they couldn't physically do it. Um, so that tends to be sort of glossed over mm. by a lot of well, there's a bit know, of a question as to wide-eyed Man United fans was, and, and how much of it was actually a smokescreen as to whether Ronaldo well, was going to go to well, City or not. I don't think it was a smokescreen. I think City were the only ones who could afford him, and then Man United went bloody hell. We can't let, can't let this happen because mm. it'll be probably the most embarrassing <laughs> thing ever that that a future Ballon d'Or winner who who they let go could then come back and stick it in the face and go into the rivals because we all know Man United didn't need Ronaldo mm. at all. Um, but why would you ever turn down the chance mm. of getting him? So, yeah, I think... Um, yeah, I mean, Going back to the question, I think this it, it probably could be the season that people will use as their main number one arguing point for Ronaldo over Messi. I think any doubters who had questions over whether Ronaldo would make an impact back in the Premier League have probably been silenced already because he has looked terrifying for oppositions when he's appeared in the Premier League so far this season. As for Messi, though, Niall, I mean, Marley's saying there he's tarnished his legacy by going to PSG. Do you think part of that decision might have been made? Because it feels unlikely that Lionel Messi would doubt his own abilities. But at the end of the day, he did take what would be seen as the quote marks easy option maybe he didn't think he could do it in the Premier League and it's very difficult going to a new club and this is something that Ronaldo has experienced before he's gone from Porto to United to Real to Juventus whereas PS uh, Messi Mm. has been a one club man so it was always going to be slightly more difficult for him to adapt he's up there in the pantheon of greats to have ever played the game for some people he's the greatest footballer to ever have played the, the beautiful sport that we love Lionel Messi what has he got to prove to anyone if, if he's one of the best ever, he can go to Paris if he wants. He can come to Pompey if he wants. He can go and play for Plymouth, any team he wants. You know, who cares? He's the he's one of the best ever. You know, why? You know, yeah, okay, he might want to challenge himself, do it in another league, whatever, but he doesn't have to do that. You know, his record speaks for itself. You know, he's won everything, really. He, he's won a trophy at international level now, finally, with the mm. Copper America this summer. But he's won Champions Leagues. He's won league titles. He's won uh, domestic cups. He's scored a ridiculous amount of goals. He's been up there neck and neck with Ronaldo, if not ahead of him in terms of the statistics for a long, long time. You know, what has he really got to prove 
to anyone. And I understand that, okay, he could have come to the Premier League or a more difficult league than France and tested himself, but he doesn't have to do that. At the end of the day, Lionel Messi holds all the cards because of who he is. And I, I definitely think that in terms of the attractiveness of PSG, they could afford to pay him a wage which would definitely suit him in terms of what he demands um, for his wages, which Barcelona couldn't afford to pay because of the situation they're in financially. There are players at PSG who he gets on with and know well, the likes of Neymar, for example. Um, he knows very well from his days at Barcelona, amongst a number of other players. So technically, if you're making this decision, if you're Lionel Messi and you put all of these factors on the table, where would I want my family to live? What's closer to Barcelona than... Uh, then you know what's a what's a close close place to Barcelona where I can play my football where am I going to play where I can fit in with the team and get on with everyone so I think they're all factors that footballers make their decisions based off of and I'm not saying that Messi moved to PSG because Paris is a shorter flight from Barcelona than it is to (laughs) Manchester for example but I definitely think these sorts of things play into it Um, and especially with what we saw at the weekend where PSG had a penalty and Messi wasn't trusted to take it. Now, that on his home debut for Paris. Pochettino now, was looking is... around on the bench looking for Mark Noble. Going, <laughs> where's well, Noble? Pochettino subbed him off. Mm. With 15 minutes to go, Pochettino subbed him off and brought right back on. And it's just, he didn't shake his hand either, Messi, when he left the field. He, he didn't happy. shake Pochettino's hand. So, I mean, you're thinking about all of these factors, surmised into one single conversation about who is the greatest of all time um at the moment it looks like it's Ronaldo doesn't it because of the way he started at Manchester United he's yeah. come back to familiar surroundings somewhere he knows well can settle in straight away he's a different player he's already adored and revered around the club and the Premier League I mean that's a lot easier for Ronaldo to come and settle in I think despite his age and despite the fact the Premier League's tougher than France, than someone like Messi going from somewhere where he's been forever to then move to the PSG side who are always tinkering and trying to find the right formula to win themselves the Champions League. I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a, di- a different challenge. Um, and actually we had a, um, a mathematician from the University of Oxford on the other day uh, called Dr. Tom Crawford. And he has devised this statistical analysis, this data, this algorithm, this formula to figure out who's the greatest of all time. And Ronaldo comes out on top just by a small margin ahead of Messi. And the algorithm actually takes into account things like the difficulty of the leagues that each of the players have played in. And honestly, it is so close between the two players, despite the fact that Messi has only played in one league, now two, and Ronaldo has played in three or four different leagues, and it is still super, super close. So actually, in terms of trying to really establish who's the greatest of all time, if Messi wins the Champions League with PSG this season, then I think that probably um, might nudge him closer to Ronaldo in terms of this algorithm and these statistics. But if Messi had come to the Premier League and won everything with Manchester City, for example, I think that there's your answer. So... It's still close, but I'm going to be the old fence sitter and go back to the old argument of why don't we just enjoy both of them while they're still around? <laughs> I do wonder how much the coach has to do with this in terms of Pochettino. I think since he was at Spurs, his star has faded slightly and people are kind of questioning what he achieved at Spurs, what he achieved at Southampton, and certainly what he's achieving at PSG now, whereas you wonder what kind of messy you would have got under the stewardship 
of Pep Guardiola at Manchester City again. You mentioned now that we should enjoy them whilst we still can. I just want to finish today's podcast because we're not going to see a situation again where there are two players vying for that status as being the world's greatest. It just doesn't often happen that you get two players that are at that level. So who is the next GOAT? Whilst when Messi and Ronaldo kind of fade into the background and we look five years into the future, who's going to be the next great player, Marley? Oh, bloody hell. I, I don't know. Because um, I feel like you can name someone now, but in two years' time, someone else might have burst onto the scene. Because mm. um, five years ago, no yep. one knew no one knew who Erling Haaland was. No one knew who Mbappe was, was probably. Um, but mm. looking at looking at it logically, you're saying who's the best two under-23, under-22 players in the world. And you'd look at Haaland and Mbappe and say, you know, you can put a, a cigarette paper between them, but... Then again, I seen the goal Erling Haaland scored at the weekend, and he managed to score a, a bicycle kick lob from sort of eighteen yards out, and it was just a freak goal where um, he used strength, pace, technique, and power all in one insane motion to to lob a goalkeeper um, from a from a long ball down the field. And I just think he's an absolute robot of a player. Mm. So I, out of everything, I'd probably go for him because, like, genetically. You know, he, he's just a freak. Like he's six foot four. He'll run you into the ground. He'll barge you off the ball. He reminds me a little he's... bit of when Jonah Lumu burst onto the rugby scene, and everyone was like, "This guy is a monster. <laughs> Who's going to stop breed. him?" Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's oh, he's he's unreal. He hits the ball so hard and so clean as well. Like yeah. everything about him, you just watch him and think, "God, I, I just want him to play in the Premier League." Um, when he moves on from Dortmund, hopefully he'll come and he'll play for. Well, I'd, mm. I'd like to see him at Man City scoring uh, an absolute hat full of goals, but we'll we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, looking at it logically, yeah. you'd say who's gonna who's gonna beat him in the next five years? Because by the time he's twenty six, twenty seven, he could have all kinds of goals. Yeah, I think he's got sixty seven goals in sixty seven Dortmund games, which is mad. But I I'm totally siding with you when you say about if we pinpoint someone now, Marley, in two or three years, they might not even be on the radar. So a good example would be Michael Owen, who burst onto the scene 17 18 scored a great goal against Argentina for England in the World Cup ended up winning the Ballon d'Or mm. went to Real Madrid and then sorry for you as a Newcastle fan but his career kind of fell off a cliff and got injured and was never the same player really and retired early and got more interested in his horses and horse racing so you know a lot of people might have said Michael Owen was destined for great things and could have been one of the best ever football players he's won a Ballon d'Or he was the best player in the world at mm. one point the the trophy is there to prove it but you're talking about the greatest of all time. He's nowhere near the conversation. He's not even in the same universe. So, you know, Marley's right. We could pick someone now, but, you know, hopefully he doesn't. And I'm sure he'll carry on at the same level he's carrying on. But if Erling Haaland next week breaks his leg or gets injured or stops scoring for whatever reason, and, you know, his career tails off, then, you know, you can't put him in the conversation. I think the reason that Messi and Ronaldo are, are streets apart from everyone else is the longevity. It has to be that. And so, you know, you can try and predict someone, but I think until we actually get to that point, it's going to be impossible to tell. It's like those predicted lineups for future World Cups you get in the papers. I was just going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) This is what England will look like in 2022, and it's got random players that you've never heard of and never seen seen again on it. Uh, Very quickly, Marley, before, um, before we wrap up, I'm just interested, because I know you watch a lot of Manchester United, where yeah. Mason Greenwood ranks in that conversation because he's one of those players that I'm always impressed with when I see 
he's not quite broken mm. into the England setup yet, but he's still only just 18 years of age, I think. But he's good with his left foot, good with his right foot. Could he be up there in that pantheon at some point? I don't see why not, to be honest. And he reminds me, we talk about former Ballon d'Or winners. One of my favourite ever football players won the Ballon d'Or in, I think, 2003 or 2004. Is um, a Czech guy called Pavel Nedved, who used to play mm. for Juventus. And he reminds me loads of him because Pavel Nedved was ambidextrous, could, could shoot with both feet, pass with both feet, played out wide, but also sometimes drifted central, had a really good shot on him with both feet. And, uh, you know, Mason Greenwood can do all of those things. He's still a teenager. I don't think he's 20 for a little while yet. So, you know, I, I just think it's remarkable. He's already the top scoring teenager for Manchester United. He didn't score. He didn't assist yesterday. But of the front three, out uh, of Fernandez, Pogba and Greenwood, who started yesterday against West Ham, I thought Greenwood was the, the most effective. Coming from the right, switching to the left, so fluid. Just the decision-making and his football intelligence, his football IQ for someone who's still a teenager is absolutely brilliant. He's just a naturally gifted football player. And I think he could be in the conversation. I really do. I mean, it's not going to do him any harm learning off of Ronaldo and Cavani. You know, this is a guy who's playing out wide at the moment, but could easily be a number nine, I think. He's still only 19 years of age and he's got so much potential and so many promising signs. Hasn't really been involved with England recently, but I think Gareth Southgate's addressed that and said that he's certainly one on the radar that we're going to be interested in bringing into the crop sooner rather than later. I definitely think that he's a great shout, Jim, and I think that he'll be up there. If he can continue the levels of performance that he's putting in, he can stay injury-free and he can stay disciplined. All of the things you need to do as a footballer, stay professional. There's no reason why he can't be one of England's greatest talents in the next 10 to 15 years. I mean, Wayne Rooney started off expertly, didn't he, at 16? And, you know, here he is at 35, looking slightly dishevelled, doing a really good job and a tough job as manager of Derby County. You know, but he kind of exploded at the start. Yeah, well, they're in administration now, aren't they, Derby? But, you know, at the start of the the season, at the start of his career, sorry, Wayne Rooney, he kind of exploded, didn't he? 16-year-old, scoring worldies off the crossbar against Arsenal, gets his move to United, becomes their record scorer. And by his early 30s, he's he's kind of retired. He's done. He mm. goes over to the MLS. I don't think Mason Greenwood will see that because I don't think we've seen that explosion of his career, that real sweet spot yet. I think that's to come. And from what we've seen so far, that is quite an exciting prospect. Want to keep an eye on as England fans and for Manchester United fans. That is it for today's Football Social Daily. You can find more news on your team, sport-social.co.uk on the website. You can also find the link to our podcast network there, where if you're into your sport podcasts and our daily Premier League podcast isn't quite enough for you, you can find your next favourite podcast to get stuck into there. Marley, Niall, thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Jim. And we'll see you next time on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.